Coming up on Stu Does America, remember when the financial system of the United States actually meant something? You have to go way back, maybe before some of you were even born, but we used to actively try and keep the deficit in check. I know, it's crazy. I'll be joined by the Manhattan Institute's Brian Riedel to discuss how we even go about turning this ship around. And directly after one of the busiest and most popular football weekends of the season, NFL.com decided to ride the momentum. Lead story, a poem about social justice inspiring or just lift lip service to the woke left we'll get into that a little bit head to studiosamerica.com right now to watch all of our episodes completely free on youtube facebook or podcast we hope you enjoy it and uh, take the time to subscribe like and uh, rate our content you know a little quick review is always a good idea too it's great whatever that's all i need Uh, but remember that conservative media is under attack right now so really seriously there's never been a more important time to consider a subscription to blaze tv just head to blaze tv.com slash stew enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and for a limited time you'll get 30 bucks off the price and speaking of taking money off what the hell are we going to do about the federal deficit? We could use a code for that, too. Maybe we could get 30% off the deficit if we use the right code. I don't know. Let's try it. What the hell should we have been doing the last four years? Anything? Let's pop a Zoloft or two and prepare for the return of the Budget Hawks. Stu does America. Tomorrow is January 20th, 2021. And according to both the Constitution and my iPhone calendar, it's the day of the presidential inauguration. It's true. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. will be inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States and the first president to be older than all of the other presidents combined. It's true. I have a little fact there for you. There are a lot of bad things that will come from a Joe Biden presidency, but there are some good things as well. For example, if things go badly, Biden won't have to live with a lasting feeling of failure because, you know, he won't be able to remember that any of it happened. And of course, after a four year hibernation, we will see the return of the Republican budget hawk. Even if you watch the news obsessively, you might have forgotten that this country has a budget or at least it's supposed to. And the country definitely has a deficit. But for the past four years, Republicans have largely forgotten about this fact. With the exception of a rare offhanded remark, Donald Trump was never really running as a guy who was going to improve the budget. Instead, he used that against his opponents, calling out other Republican candidates who had previously presented plans on getting the debt in order. He promised not to cut a dime out of our entitlements. And famously, after losing the election, he called for Republicans to hand out $2,000 checks, the same amount the hard left House was asking for, a move that many believe cost Republicans the Senate in Georgia. However, stopping the debt was never Trump's thing, never his big priority. Congressional Republicans ran on lowering the deficit year after year after year, and then Trump got elected and almost every single one of them forgot how to speak for four years. So what happens when you combine a spending-obsessed Democratic Congress along with a Republican uh, Congress that is completely subservient to a president who doesn't care about spending whatsoever? (laughs) In part, you get the mess that we're currently in. Since Trump took office, the national debt has risen by $7.8 trillion, or almost $24,000 additional dollars per person. Now, about half of that is COVID-related, but as you can see with our fancy chart, Chartapalooza, Conservators unite. 
Even before COVID, the debt was rising at about the same pace as Barack freaking Obama. That's a pace you might remember Republicans complaining about quite a bit before 2016. Now, this isn't all Trump's fault by any means, nor is it current politicians' fault, really. A lot of this is the result of a zillion terrible choices made long ago. The guy probably most at fault for all of this is Democratic racist Lyndon B. Johnson. But that's another monologue for another day. Well, let me give you at least a little bit on LBJ's racism. You never want an article to be written about you that begins, quote, Lyndon Johnson said the N-word a lot. Never a good sign. But let's look at this quote said to his chauffeur from this liberal icon, LBJ, quote, as long as you are black and you're going to be black till the day you die, no one's going to call you by your GD name. So no matter what you're called, N-word, you just let it roll off your back like water and you'll make it. Just pretend you're a GD piece of furniture. Ah, the loving left. When your legacy is trillions and trillions of dollars of debt, and it's only the second worst thing about you, you know you were a crap heap of a president. Thanks, LBJ. As far as Trump, he finishes third worst in interest-adjusted debt as it relates to the size of the economy, behind only George W. Bush with the very expensive War on Terror and Abraham Lincoln with a very expensive Civil War. On the bright side, if you're looking for a way to say that Trump was better than Abe Lincoln, congrats, you just found it. This is the problem, though. We are at debt levels never before seen outside of raging war. And thankfully, that's not the one, you know, it's the one thing not going wrong at the moment, at least. We don't have tons of raging wars, and our debt, though, is still out of control with no way to easily turn it around. And that's where the return of the budget hawk comes in. Now that Joe Biden is going to be president, and he's going to be sending dollars out the door at rates never before seen, suddenly every Republican is going to find their backbone when it comes to spending. Thank God. Yes, I know it's hollow. And yes, I know it's not heartfelt or principle-based. Yes, I know that the second a Republican president is back in office, every Republican will forget about math once again. But with all the bad news in the world, this is one little tiny bit of good news. I mean, it's all we have, honestly, to stop the economic catastrophe that is Joe Biden. This is from Axios today. Quote, Biden is charting an economic policy that's visibly to the left of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. If he succeeds, it's going to show up not only in taxes and spending, but also in regulation. Goes on. The economic policy team has signaled it will be the first administration ever to construct economic policy around issues like race, gender equality and climate change, rather than traditional indicators like gross domestic product, or deficit ratios. Holy crap, we are screwed. So America, on this inauguration eve, celebrate that long, invisible, and rare creature that's about to make a comeback, the Republican budget hawk. Joe Biden has already announced a $1.9 trillion plan that he's already calling Step 1. Step two comes in February and includes massive investments in clean energy, among other disasters. We'll go through the Biden vision for making your bank account worthless with Brian Riedel next. So. 
So, I mean, you might as well buy a home uh, now because God only knows what's going to happen to our economy. Uh, you might as well have a place that's at least warm and sheltered. They're probably going to get rid of, uh, you know, any eviction notices for the next 50 years. So why not just get into a house as soon as you can? Biggest house you can afford, right? That's probably terrible advice, but ask your real estate agent about it. A real estate agent you can trust. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com. If you need to sell your home and you want to get the most money for it, they can walk you through each and every step as to how to do it, how to market it, how to fix things up, how to stage the house in the best way possible to uh, get that uh, offer up uh, and get more offers uh, in the door. Also, uh, if you want to buy a house, you want to get the best price possible, you need someone who really understands the area, going to understand what the best comps are to get your price down. They're good at this. Uh, when you have a real estate agent who kind of like knows what they're doing as opposed to someone who maybe just started, maybe is doing it kind of part-time, maybe is uh, you, know, you, you met them because you happen to see their picture on a bus uh, bench or you know at a Starbucks and the little card disposal, you know all that stuff is fine. But really, you need to find someone who's been screened and is the best agent in your area. You'll find them at realestateagentsitrust.com. Get more information at realestateagentsitrust.com. Realestateagentsitrust.com. All right, Brian Riedel, he's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's also on Twitter at Brian underscore R I E D L. And I went to his page today and noticed his pinned tweet. It reads this way. My upcoming hell is four years of criticizing Biden on spending and deficits and countless Twitter randos responding. You partisan hack. Where were you during the Trump and Bush deficits? Answer 500 articles and reports and 3000 media citations over 20 years slamming each president. Welcome to your personal hell, Brian Riedel. <laughs> Glad to be here. I'll enjoy the burn. <laughs> it starts tomorrow for you. You know, this is going to be it. People are going to be talking about all the, the new spending. We have the return of the budget. Hawk is going to be making an appearance once again. You were doing this the entire time, but you didn't have too many allies in this one. No, I didn't. In fact, this goes back to the Bush administration when I actually got banned from the Bush White House for criticizing <laughs> uh, the budget deficits back then. Uh, and so this is old hat to me to be to be ripped apart by by every presidential administration. But uh, I like to say I'm not a hypocrite. I'm an equal opportunity uh, offender. <laughs> very, very true. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's interesting to see because you have been doing this the whole time and we've had you on throughout uh, the, the, the Trump years talking about this. Uh, as well as going all the way back to the Bush years, actually. Um, and it's, it's interesting to look at this now because the Republican Party as a whole forgot that a budget existed. They forgot that spending could be a problem. Um, the last four years has been embarrassing, frankly, uh, for Republicans who have taken this core issue of conservative principle and completely deleted it because it wasn't a priority of Donald Trump. Do they come back and make an issue of this again? What should we expect? Well, I think you, the Republicans will probably rediscover their religion on deficits right now because it is easier when a Democrat is in office. Uh, politically, the last four years were terrible. They increased spending by trillions of dollars. Um, President Trump said there will be no changes to Social Security and Medicare, even though that's what's driving long-term deficits. Uh, overall, deficits skyrocketed even before the pandemic. It's easier to get religion on deficits when a Democrat is president, and we'll probably see that. At the same time, if you want to defend Republicans a little bit, I would say that after $3.4 trillion in pandemic spending, you should be more of a deficit hawk as soon as the economy recovers. That should have an effect on you. If you don't think $3 
trillion dollars uh, means that we have to pull back moving forward when the recession ends or something wrong with you. Yeah. And three point four trillion dollars. We're putting this together was two trillion initially. Right. Then nine hundred billion recently. And so that's what two point nine. We also had an, we also did have another five hundred billion dollar bill. I think I'm forgetting in the middle there. That does not include yes. the, the new Biden plans, which we know are one point nine trillion is the initial one. And then it seems like every article I read, it just says there's a mysterious step two to the spending as well that's supposed to come next month. What do we know about all this? Well, if you remember the last time we were going through a recession, Rahm Emanuel, the White House chief of staff for Obama, said never let a crisis go to waste. Mm. That's what we're seeing right now. We've already done $3.4 trillion. We just did $900 billion a couple weeks ago. And now Biden's is proposing 1.9 trillion, the vast majority of which has very little to do with the recession, and a lot of it is just the same old liberal wish list. If you get that, you're up to five and a half trillion dollars. And then uh, the president-elect has said, "Wait, there's more <laughs> uh, coming up this spring: trillions for infrastructure, trillions for healthcare." You know, even if we just do this bill by the end of next year, nearly a quarter of the national debt will just have come from the pandemic and its response. The numbers are remarkable. Jeez, mm, this is amazing. All right, let's go through some of this $1.9 trillion. Mm-hmm. Um, one of, we're seeing the, the headline stuff is easy, right? $1,400 checks, which supposedly kind of square the circle of the uh, $2,000 uh, proposal that Trump wound up uh, in, embracing. Uh, also, an unemployment uh, increase, uh, what is it, $400 a week. Uh, that's in there. You see, um, what is it? I mean, I was amazed. $20 billion for vaccinations. Like that's uh, of 1.9 trillion, only $20 billion creates this national vaccination program. I mean, it does seem like the priorities are out of whack. Yeah, there's some stuff in here that is important. Our two top priorities right now as a country are getting everyone vaccinated and then reopening the school so that mom and dad can go back to work and get this economy going again. Mm. There's about one fifth of the funding in this bill would go very broadly speaking to health care and reopening schools, uh, which, again, are, are the most important things we, we could do. I would like to see a bigger emphasis on getting everyone vaccinated because it doesn't matter what else you do in the meantime. But even if you do all that, broadly speaking, you still have about one point four, one point five trillion dollars totally unrelated to the vaccine and opening schools. Let's go through this uh, because there's a big program in there about medical leave, which would be kind of in some ways the opposite of getting people back to work. I'd rather spend that money on vaccinations and then uh, you don't have to worry about the medical leave. Uh, But there uh, there's also this thing about opening schools. And I think we would both agree that this would be a big priority. Even conservatives generally, uh, you know, across the board would be pretty, uh, pretty friendly to that type of spending. What exactly does it do, though? I mean, they're talking about uh, $130 billion going toward uh, reopening schools. What what does that go toward? Yeah, 130 billion for K-12 plus even more for college. A lot of this is probably more than I think what we actually need for this purpose. A lot of it is remodeling schools uh, and, and making room in order for social distancing, um, adding school buses. If you're going to have social distancing on school buses, you're going to need to have more buses. Mm-hmm. Um, hiring more healthcare workers in school, hiring people to do to clean more. I will say it. 
all of those are very important. And if it's, that's what it takes to reopen schools, do it. But $170 billion, I mean, the, the federal government usually spends about $50 billion on K through 12 every year with the rest coming from uh, state and local governments. They're going to spend $170 billion just on getting the schools ready for social distancing and the school buses. That is an enormous amount. Yeah, it really is. And again, like it seems like an odd priority in a way. It's, it's like taking temporary measures for a virus that we hope, at least, and we're on the, the, the track to get rid of if the, you know, the vaccination program can go well. And then we're going to spend all this money putting up like plexiglass all over these schools. And we're going to want to mm-hmm. immediately take it back down afterward. Uh, you know, it, it just seems like a strange priority. You know, if we just get everyone vaccinated, put all of our resources into getting everyone vaccinated as fast as we can, then you don't need to have the schools totally rebuilt like this. You don't need the family leave. You don't need the huge unemployment bonuses going all the way through the end of the year. You could actually curtail some of that if you just put so much more emphasis into fixing the vaccine problems we're having in New York, California, and elsewhere. Uh, I'm kind of going down the list here, Brian, from most related to least related uh, when it comes to COVID. And there's this big chunk of money that seems to just be going to states for almost like a state bailout situation. Obviously, times Mm -hmm. have been tough. uh, So we're just kind of just forking money over. This has been a big priority for Democrats. Is this COVID related or is it just, you know, their budgets are a little bit out of whack and we're just giving them cash? We're just giving them cash. Um, the states have already gotten a couple hundred billion dollars in previous bills. Um, it's not, you know, the argument that states have gotten nothing is not the case. They've gotten Medicare funding. I'm sorry, Medicaid funding. They've gotten school funding. They've gotten pandemic funding, which which went way beyond what they needed. Even though their revenues from the recession only really are down about 50, 75 billion from last year, mm. they would get 350 billion dollars in general revenues, which is much more than they actually need. It's much more than they lost. And this also creates a bit of a moral hazard, which is now what you're telling states is you don't need a rainy day fund. You don't need to ever tighten your belt because the next time we have a recession, you're just going to get a huge bailout from the feds. That's five times bigger than what you actually lost. (laughs) I'm not saying states shouldn't be helped at all. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are some states that are in a lot of trouble, but the amount they're getting is, is again, it's about five times larger than their actual shortfalls. Mm. I mean, and and that's audacious, I will say. Five times as much. (laughs) Sounds like a lot in a COVID bill. Mm. However, I cannot believe they are trying to jam in a $15 minimum wage in the middle of this thing. (laughs) This is absolutely incredible that they're trying this. It is the most insane part of the proposal. It is economic malpractice. Listen, the Congressional Budget Office said, even if you phased this in over five years in a booming economy, it would still cost millions of jobs. Mm. But to jam it in during a recession is is completely insane. And the best part is the minimum wage for tipped workers, like waiters and waitresses, would go from $2.13 to $15. Now think about that. Wow. Restaurants, restaurants have been hit hardest of all uh, compared to a lot of other industries. Millions of restaurants are closing. They're hanging by a thread. They're struggling to rebuild. Let's raise the minimum wage they have to pay by 600% while they're teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. 
this is the most insane provision put into a stimulus bill. It is like if you wanted to design a bill to kick restaurants out of business, this is what you would do. Yeah, I mean, this is this might be worse than the pandemic for the actual <laughs> business because uh, it's never going to end. There's no vaccine to cure it um, later on because um, this is so because I as a uh, former restaurant employee who made two twelve an hour and waited tables mm-hmm. that comes along with tips. Right. Like that's yes. your, your your formulation is a very small hourly wage plus tips and it makes a decent wage. You're saying they're going to go to $15 an hour. I mean, that's the end of tipping, isn't it? Yeah, $15 an hour plus tips, which means the restaurants that do stay in business are probably going to have to raise their menu prices a lot. Mm. And it's going to be hard to expect people to continue tipping 15 20, 25% when the prices have already gone up through the roof and the waiter or waitress is already making $15 an hour. I mean, it's great work to be a waiter and waitress in that sort of situation if the tips are flying in. But, you know, the economics of, of, of the restaurants and being a waiter and waitress are going to be kind of flipped upside down here. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's go back to where we we stand now. Uh, I mean, we, we spent a little bit of time at this at the beginning talking about how Republic mm-hmm. I you know, I, one of the dangerous things about having a Republican president uh, is the Republican president makes uh, every Republican lose their backbone when it comes to debt. And at least when there's a Democratic president, there's people standing up and saying things about it. There's a big article in The Washington Post today, and I have a feeling the Washington, the media itself is going to forget about debt here coming up in a couple of days as well. Um, but they cover at great depth in a way that I would not expect from The Washington Post how bad the situation is. And I sort of tie that to the fact that, you know, Trump is outgoing and they want to make that point quite clearly. But it's not just Trump. It's everybody. It's been everybody for a long time. We are at levels of debt that, you know, is, is really relate, relation to the economy that we saw, you know, around World War II, except there's no war. There's no comeback mm-hmm. here. There's no quick flip of the switch to make everything roar back. Obviously, COVID going away would be some of that, but we are in a really tough spot and there's not an obvious way to turn it around. Yeah, the difference, you, you got it right. The difference is World War II ended. Uh, the problem right now is we're at about a $21 trillion debt. We're going to increase it a few more trillion dollars with the pandemic. And then over the next 30 years, the Congressional Budget Office projects $104 trillion in additional debt. And that's under the rosy scenario Mm. of no new tax cuts, no new spending programs, no more wars, no recessions. The tax cuts expire, interest rates stay low, $104 trillion debt deluge is coming. It really is bad. I mean, the deficit was already going to be a trillion dollars before the pandemic hit. We may be looking at permanent deficits, 1.5, 2 trillion or higher, even during good times. It's completely unsustainable. And Washington is totally in denial. The Republicans don't want to talk about it. And the Democrats are bidding it up even higher. You know, Biden has called for $11 trillion in new spending overall during his administration. Washington is totally in denial. Mm. Uh, the Washington Post set, it breaks it down and they talk about the difference between automatic spending and uh, and the automatic spending thing really stuck out to me because, you know, mm-hmm. we can all complain about these things. But and I, I just complain about LBJ generally, but people can complain about these things. In some ways, it's difficult to turn them off. I mean, it was one of the problems with Trump saying he was never going to change any of these giant programs. But mm-hmm. these things are just going to keep churning and getting bigger and bigger and worse and worse. And unless all of a sudden we decide we find austerity as a country, I, I don't see how we're going to turn that around. 
Yeah, two-thirds of all federal spending is on permanent autopilot. And that's why at times you feel bad for members of Congress who want to do the right thing because you have to get the House, Senate, and President to all agree to turn it off on autopilot. And these are the fastest-growing programs in the budget. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, anti-poverty program, unemployment, farm subsidies. It's all growing on autopilot. And as long as – even if the Republicans get religion, if the Democrats say we don't want to turn this off autopilot, then you know you could elect Barry Goldwater's you know, mm-hmm. ghost president right now, it wouldn't make a difference because we've put all of the federal spending that's growing so fast on autopilot. Uh, uh, Last one here, Brian, before you go. Is there some sort of what's close to a consensus among economists uh, that think about this and worry about this problem? Is there some sort of consensus as to what the limit is that we can take I mean, we're talking about $20 trillion now plus. You're talking about another $100 trillion in the future. It, what is the limit? I mean, there has to be some limit somewhere, and I really don't want to find it. We don't really know what the limit is. Uh, the limit – right now we're at 100 percent of GDP. Some people say 120, 150. Others point out, well, Japan hit 200 percent of GDP, but Japan's been an economic basket case for 30 years. Mm. One of the problems we have compared to other countries, our debt is too big for other countries to bail out. You know, the rest of the world can bail out Greece because Greece's economy is small. The rest of the world can't bail out the U.S. because if our debt goes to 120 trillion dollars, there's no way other countries can bail that out. So we might actually hit sooner than other countries. Uh, Whether that happens in three years, five years, 10 years, 12 years, it's really hard to predict. At a certain point, it's really bond market psychology. At some point, the bond market is going to say, I don't think you guys are good for this. I don't know if you can afford to pay this debt. And then they're going to demand higher interest rates and then everything falls apart. Mm. So that's the uh, ray of sunshine. That is Brian Riedel. And of course, <laughs> uh, find him on Twitter at Brian underscore R-I-E-D-L. He's a senior fellow uh, at the Manhattan Institute and just a cheery ray of sunshine every time he comes on. Brian, thanks for doing it. Thanks so much, Stu. All right, back in a second. It's been a wild couple months since Election Day. If you watch the show, you kind of know that I wasn't entirely surprised by the results of the election. Of course, uh, to mention that uh, the election preview show on this particular program uh, predicted uh, Joe Biden with 306 electoral votes, the exact amount that Joe Biden ended up with. Not a huge surprise. And I think most people kind of were worried about this one, right, going in if you were a big Trump supporter. Uh, Since then, there's been this uh, sort of split. uh, um, And there's been some people who really thought that uh, Joe Biden was not going to be inaugurated. Uh, There's been this there's been kind of a split in that group as well. Like there's some people who are like QAnon, I'm going to storm the Capitol type of people who are like, Joe Biden will not get in because I'm stopping him right now. I'm walking through the front door and I'm making sure this does not happen. There's that side of it. But I think the overwhelming majority of people are just like, please, I can't deal with Joe Biden as my president. And you're looking for any way to be hopeful that he's not going to be your president. Like the same way, you know, when I take out my wallet and I flip through it and I see an old Powerball ticket in there. And I'm like, maybe this is worthless, but maybe it's $100 million. You know, I think people are just hoping against hope that somewhat, somehow, some way, uh, Donald Trump would continue. Well, it does not appear that that's going to happen. Uh, and it does appear that Donald Trump is out now talking about this pretty openly. Uh, he released a his farewell address would be a strange thing to do. 
Uh, but maybe it's the ultimate to set, kind of throw us off the scent that he's going to continue for four more years. It would be a strange thing to do to give your farewell address, but he did give that today and released it. We have a couple clips of this, and uh, I thought it was a pretty good speech. Watch. My fellow Americans, four years ago, we launched a great national effort to rebuild our country, to renew its spirit, and to restore the allegiance of this government to its citizens. In short, we embarked on a mission to make America great again for all Americans. As I conclude my term as the 45th President of the United States, I stand before you truly proud of what we have achieved together. We did what we came here to do, and so much more. This week, we inaugurate a new administration and pray for its success in keeping America safe and prosperous. We extend our best wishes, and we also want them to have luck, a very important word. <laughs> you do need luck as President of the United States, uh, that's for sure. I thought he had the right tone uh, here uh, for this speech. Uh, it's a tough moment, right? I mean, this is obviously the biggest job you're ever going to have. Uh, and it's tough to kind of say, you know what, I, uh, I'm going to be leaving and we wish the best for the country and the next administration. But he, he did that today. Went through a lot of his accomplishments uh, uh, of what he kind of did while he was in office. One thing that was kind of overlooked, I thought, was uh, this section. And I don't know that it'll ever get the attention it deserves. Watch. We obliterated the ISIS caliphate and ended the wretched life of its founder and leader, al-Baghdadi. We stood up to the oppressive Iranian regime and killed the world's top terrorist, Iranian butcher Qasem Soleimani. We recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. As a result of our bold diplomacy and principled realism, we achieved a series of historic peace deals in the Middle East. Nobody believed it could happen. The Abraham Accords opened the doors to a future of peace and harmony, not violence and bloodshed. It is the dawn of a new Middle East, and we are bringing our soldiers home. <laughs> Can I raise my hand here? Um, I didn't believe it was going to happen. <laughs> I got to say, uh, the middle, you know, going into a Trump administration, uh, there are a lot of things I think we were familiar with with Donald Trump and kind of knew were coming. Uh, and I think we all kind of expected that the economy would be pretty good, which it was, at least uh, until COVID hit. Uh, but I don't think there was a lot of optimism that the Middle East would be uh, one of his strong points. I mean, I just. I don't know. It didn't really seem like something he was particularly interested in at any other point in his public life. Uh, but he came in and uh, working with people like Jared Kushner uh, did a really good job over in the Middle East. It's hard to, to, to deny. Now, the left will come in and they'll try to say uh, how bad everything was. But we we got rid of a bunch of terrorists. No new wars started, uh, which is fantastic, obviously, to be able to avoid that. Uh, and uh, all the, the 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 working with the people in the Middle East to recognize Israel, these are things that were, number one, unavailable to every previous president, uh, at least in recent memory. And number two, I think totally surprising for anyone who wasn't like a major Trump supporter at the beginning. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I would not have predicted that uh, Jerusalem and uh, Israel and uh, the Middle East would have been the thing I, I was singing praises of. But really, 
it's hard to deny that that went really well. You know, people, you know, to, to, to separate, to expand it to Jared Kushner as well. People mocked the hell out of the Trump administration for number one, Trump, who's never going to be able to have any diplomacy in the Middle East. All he's going to do is bomb people. And number two, Jared Kushner. Who the heck is Jared Kushner? How is he going to do a good job over there? Well, it went pretty freaking well. Uh, you know, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm happy to always admit when I think something is going to go poorly and it goes better than I expected. This part of the Trump administration did go much better than I expected. And uh, I think he deserves a lot of credit for it. Tomorrow on the radio show, we're going to be taking your calls. 888-727-BECK is the phone number, as you may know. Uh, and we're taking your calls on things that you look back at the Trump administration these these four years, uh, things you're thankful for. What, do you, what would you say? Thank you. Uh, to Donald Trump for what would you say? Well, if you were talking to Donald Trump, had a had, hey, had a, a moment to say, hey, thanks, uh, Mr. President, uh, thank you for this particular thing. We're going to go through some of that uh, on tomorrow's program as as the transition takes place. I'm going to leave you with this here uh, before we go to break. This is the end of his speech um, as he kind of says his final farewell as the 45th president of the United States. Now, as I prepare to hand power over to a new administration. At noon on Wednesday, I want you to know that the movement we started is only just beginning. There's never been anything like it. The belief that a nation must serve its citizens will not dwindle, but instead only grow stronger by the day. As long as the American people hold in their hearts deep and devoted love of country, then there is nothing that this nation cannot achieve. Our communities will flourish. Our people will be prosperous. Our traditions will be cherished. Our faith will be strong. And our future will be brighter than ever before. I go from this majestic place with a loyal and joyful heart, an optimistic spirit, and a supreme confidence that for our country and for our children, the best is yet to come. Thank you and farewell. God bless you. God bless the United States of America. If you've ever run a business, you know that HR issues can absolutely kill you and your business. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations. You know what a disaster trying to work with the government is on this stuff. And it's impossible to figure out half the time. You don't know if you're in compliance or not. HR manager salaries are not cheap. An average of $70,000 a year. Is that too much for your small business? you got to try Bambi then. It's spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. It was created specifically for small business. This is a great solution. You get a dedicated HR manager uh, and you can craft HR policy, maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. And this is important to know. If you're a business and you don't want to be like calling to some call center and every single person is going to be like answering the phones, be like, ah, oh, yeah, let me look up your file and try to figure it out. It's not like that at all. You've got a dedicated HR manager uh, available by phone or email or real time uh, chat. From onboarding to terminations, uh, they can customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just 99 bucks a month. I mean, that's crazy. Month-to-month, no hidden fees. Cancel anytime. It does not get better than this. Go to Bambi.com slash Stu, B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash Stu right now to schedule your free HR audit. It's Bambi.com slash Stu. Don't forget 
the slash stew part of the address because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Bambi.com slash stew. So there's a big uh, NFL weekend that just happened. People say this is the best weekend of football of the year because you get two games on Saturday, two games on Sunday. The games weren't all that great, frankly, uh, but uh, it was a big weekend of football. People gather and just watch NFL all day for the entire weekend. It's kind of a big tradition if you're an NFL fan. Uh, The next day after that particular weekend, if you went to NFL.com, you got this as the lead story. (laughs) Amazing. Reality versus Perception, a poem by Tyler Lockett. True. Um, Tyler Lockett is joined by Aaron Donald, Saquon Barkley, and other NFL stars to deliver his original powerful poem, Reality versus Perception, on the experience of being a black man in America. In case you were concerned about what the experience is like for uh, Tyler Lockett as a black man in America, he signed a three-year, $30 million contract with a $9 million signing bonus. It's an incredible... Experience I, the oppression. It's almost overwhelming. Now, granted, I'll give you, it was Martin Luther King Day, so you're not surprised to see the NFL uh, dip into this well a little bit. And look, you know, I'm sure Tyler's had some really uh, terrible experiences in his life, or I don't know, I don't know the guy. But I will say, it's a little, it's a little much. I don't go to NFL.com for poetry. Does that need to be said? I don't. Go to NFL.com for poetry. I'm flabbergasted by the whole thing. Uh, By the way, New York Mets uh, general manager, um, Jared Porter, uh, lasted uh, about 30 days uh, as the general manager. Why? Uh, Send some texts. Some texts you're not supposed to send. Now, it's an interesting thing because if you read the entire report, he sent 62 texts to a, to a reporter, um, and uh, including um, some explicit pictures. Now, this reporter, who we don't know who it is, is an international reporter, no longer a reporter, apparently. He's in, in finance now. Um, but he sent, I guess he met this woman. They had some nice conversations. Uh, I guess he flirted with her a little bit. She claims that she was never really into it, but wasn't exactly sure how to deal with uh, with with this guy who she didn't particularly like uh, all that much outside of business. That's always a tough line in these situations. The tough line is not those 62 texts. So basically, uh, if you go through the entire story to give you a quick download of this, uh, he texted her a few times. She seemed to be somewhat playful in her responses. That was admitted by her. Um, and then he eventually got to the point where he started sending pictures of himself and his boxers uh, in somewhat explicit uh, fashion. Um, and uh, he asked her at one point, do you want to see more? Now, her answer to that was yes. So, I mean, I, you can understand him sending one text, maybe, or two, or I don't know, five. What's the number? I mean, it's not 62 with no responses, eventually on number 62, which was even more explicit than the previous ones, uh, she responded, please stop with your inappropriate behavior. And after that, he was not inappropriate. However, this was not uh, a storyline that was able to bail him out of getting uh, fired uh, because he lost his job after, I think, 32 days on the job. Uh, He was an up and coming guy. I think, what is he, 37 years old? He's he's a pretty young guy. Um, He apologized for it. But I don't know what... (laughs) I want you to come up with this, and you, you, you answer this question to yourself. 
You text someone's like, I, I'm not in the dating world. I don't understand this stuff. You text someone uh, some picture after you're flirty. She respond. You ask, want to see more? And she says, yes. What's the appropriate number of texts after that moment that you send without a response? I mean, it's not it's not 62. It's also not zero. Right. It's I, I don't know. It's got to be at least a couple. Uh, I don't know. What's the number? Do we have a number? James, you have a guess? What's your number on that? Seven. Seven. (laughs) Seven. It's exactly seven. You send seven texts. If she hasn't responded to you by seven, don't send any more nude photos until she responds. Uh, But seven texts is the appropriate number of texts. We have that uh, officially from from James. Thank you, James, uh, for the uh, scientific input. And by the way, you think you live in a a weird country. Uh, let me tell you, uh, take you over to Wales for a moment. Uh, this is a, a little bit of a rough story. So uh, if you have kids around, if you if you if you somehow lasted through the last story, get them out of the room. Uh, this is a, uh, a story of a crime, a terrible crime, um, a rape. Uh, now, I would not normally just bring you a random rape story, but this one's pretty interesting because it was done by a woman, a Michelle Winter, 49 years old. Um, she raped another woman. At the same uh, at the address she lived at, um, and and that was on May sixteenth of last year. Now, this is a, a terrible, normal crime story, with the exception of the fact that it was a woman that raped a woman, and that's just not normally what you hear. It's not until you get about halfway down through the story that you realize uh, you, you read this sentence: Winter, Michelle Winter, who identifies as a female but has a male anatomy was jailed for 15 years on charges of rape. So some would tell you this story and say a guy just raped a woman and it would be a really terrible story, but it would be one we're all too familiar with. This one, however, is a man who says uh, he's a woman who raped another woman. And even though he raped the woman with his male parts is still being called a woman in the news story. That's the, that's the world you live in, folks. I can't see how anything could go wrong with this guy in prison for 15 years among the female population. Because, again, it's a woman, so that's where you'd put him, right? Back in a second. Well, if you made it to this point in the show, you're in the Cool Kids Club. Won't the Cool Kids make it to this point in the program? Uh, If you're here, we'd really appreciate you clicking that like button. I know sometimes you forget you watch the show. It's so fascinating. You don't even bother to click the like button. Do it because it helps us uh, grow the audience and stay on the air. We really appreciate it. Also, if you are looking for the greatest mug of all time to make everything delicious that you taste out of it, you want a Nancy Pelosi Sucks mug. It's available now. It's one of our biggest sellers. Nancy Pelosi Sucks written all over it in very classy um, uh, typography, I guess, or her uh, calligraphy almost. I mean, it's almost that beautiful. It's the same handwriting as her signature. Uh, it's our Nancy Pelosi Sucks pen. It was made for the f- uh, first impeachment. Uh, now we have a Nancy Pelosi Sucks mug as well. Uh, now she's getting a second uh, impeachment. We She deserves a second product. Also, there's T-shirts up there as well. Okay, before we leave, Joe Exotic uh, has his limousine waiting outside of prison, waiting for his presidential pardon. We'll see if that happens uh, tomorrow. And Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, her uh, vagina cal- uh, candle that everyone was buying, if you were very strange and borderline psychotic, um, one of them exploded. 
that exploded at a woman's house. Uh, Jody Thompson bought one. The candle exploded and emitted huge flames with bits flying everywhere. I've never seen anything like it. The whole thing was ablaze and it was too hot to touch. There was an inferno in the room. It could have burned the place down. It was scary at the time, but funny looking back that Gwyneth's vagina candle exploded in my living room. I mean, it's almost poetry. It almost writes itself. By the way, if you happen to buy uh, a Gwyneth Paltrow vagina uh, candle, you're insane. We'll see you tomorrow.